This is a reading from Matthew 6, 5 through 9. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, that they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. The word of the Lord. All right, well, good morning again. I think I forgot to say at the beginning, my name is Nathan Edwards. I am the pastor here at River Community Church, and so uh, we're excited that you are here. We are actually uh, in the second week of a brand new series, uh, which is focused on the Lord's Prayer, but uh, you might see this image around town. You might have gotten something in your mailbox that looks like this. Um, This is uh, the idea, this image is kind of trying to capture the idea of what the sermon series is about. In the Lord's Prayer, we have the Lord Jesus Christ giving us the prayer he wants his people to pray. And that prayer involves six petitions, six things we ask God to give us. And at the center of that prayer are these words, as it is on earth, as it is in heaven. And so what we see with the Lord's Prayer is we see the Lord desiring his people to pray for it to be on earth as it is in heaven. And so I believe each of these six petitions in the Lord's Prayer gives us a glimpse of heaven, which is what we looked at last week, a vision of heaven, that then becomes something that the Lord wants us to pray for and the Lord wants us to work to live out in our church and wider in our community. And so we see the words as it is in focus because that is what we're trying to focus on, this vision of heaven that Jesus has given us. And the way that we focus on Jesus' vision is that we have to have spectacles. The vision that Jesus has is not something that we see by ourselves. If we look at the world, if we just look at the earth around us, if we look at the events of this last week, we do not see it on earth as it is in heaven. We see absolute calamity. We see all kinds of despair. But the Lord Jesus Christ gives us glasses, the spectacles of faith, to see as it actually is in heaven so that we can start living out that reality here on earth. And so as we move into this second sermon in this series, we go from having that vision of heaven that we had last week to now more focusing on those glasses, on the spectacles. This week we are going to focus on How do we see clearly this vision of heaven? How do we become part of Jesus' vision? How do we see as Jesus sees? We recognize that we cannot see this vision of heaven unless we are able to see clearly the way that Jesus does. So Jesus, in our passage today, is giving us the answer to how are we going to see correctly. Jesus shows us in this passage that was just read a very important thing. What we believe about God shapes the way we pray. That is, that if we have an erroneous view of God, we will practice an erroneous way of prayer. We can look at it the other way around. If we look at our prayer life, that shows us something about what we truly believe about God. The way we pray tells us something about our heart's view of God. And so, if we don't have a right view of God, 
Jesus is saying right here, we will not experience the benefits that come from prayer. Our heart is revealed in the way that we pray. This passage shows us that there are three different hearts that are revealed in prayer. One of the things that I have discovered being a father are some of the unique interests that my children have picked up. And one of my sons has picked up an interest that he does not share with his father. And that is a love for snakes. He is constantly researching snakes, studying snakes, learning about snakes, going to the snake house at the uh, zoo, and fascinated with snakes all of the time. Now, because he is fascinated with snakes, I have got to learn a little bit about snakes, and I want to share a very important lesson that I have learned about one snake in particular, the coral snake. The coral snake is this very colorful snake that lives near here, but I hope it doesn't live in Louisiana. You can let me know if you've seen one. But the coral snake has this beautiful pattern, red on yellow. And if you see red on yellow, it kills a fellow. That's the thing you need to learn. Red on yellow kills a fellow. Why do we need to know that? Because there are several other snakes that have very similar looking colors, very similar stripes, and they look that way to disguise themselves as a coral snake. They want you to see it and think of a coral snake for its own protection. So the, 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 the nature has disguised itself to look like the coral snake. And that's why we must learn to look for red on yellow, because if you see red on yellow, that kills a fellow. All right? So the idea of nature taking on this disguise to look like something it isn't is something that we have to recognize, because if if we don't, that might risk our very life. In a similar way, the words that Jesus gives us today are meant to do the same thing. Heeding the words that Jesus gives us could save your life. Because Jesus wants us to look at our heart to see if it is disguising itself for a true heart that believes in God, when in fact it isn't. In this passage, Jesus is giving us two disguises that look like the real thing, but are not. They reveal a false faith. Now, the Lord's Prayer shows up in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount in the book of Matthew. And the Sermon on the Mount can be summarized as basically the ethics that disciples of Jesus are supposed to have. In the sixth chapter, which is the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus focuses on what it means to live in the presence of God. And as he begins to explain what it means to live in the presence of God, he wants to warn us that there are people who look like they are living in the presence of God, but are actually very far from God. And he wants us to see these two examples to warn us of those habits, to warn us of that practice. The pastor, Murray McChain, said this about a man. What a man is on his knees before God, that he is and no more. What that means is that when we are praying, there is is nothing else but who we are and what we think about God. Everything about who we are towards God is revealed in what we do when we pray. And so Jesus is making it very clear here that if we are not praying to God in the right way, we are revealing that we are a man far from God. What are we when we pray? What are we truly believing 
when we speak to God. In our passage, we are going to see that there are three different hearts that are revealed by prayer. Let us go through this passage one at a time to see what different hearts are revealed by prayer as we examine ourselves for whether we have perhaps disguised ourselves not as the real thing, but as a counterfeit. So three different hearts revealed in prayer we see in this passage. The first, and if you have your little white handout, you can follow along and keep track of this. The first heart that is revealed in prayer, Jesus tells us, is this. Prayer reveals the self-centered heart. Prayer reveals the self-centered heart. Here we're looking at verse 5. And when you pray, Jesus says, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogue and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. Hmm. Who is the hypocrite? Who is the hypocrite? In Jesus' day, the word hypocrite did not have the negative connotation that, that we have today. Nobody goes out saying, I'm a hypocrite. But in Jesus' day, people did. They were calling themselves an actor. The word hypocrite was the word that was invented originally to describe the person in the theater who was an actor, someone who put on an act, who put on a persona. And so to be a hypocrite is basically to be an actor. Now, the problem that Jesus raises for us about the hypocrite is that he hides in plain sight. The hypocrite is the person who stands in the synagogues and prays. He is the person who stands on the street corners and prays. The thing about the hypocrite is that their act is very convincing. We can't look out and say, there is a hypocrite. They were not obvious. The hypocrite was somebody who looked very convincing, very authentic. In fact, I would suggest, as Jesus probably has in mind the Pharisees of his day, the hypocrite has convinced even himself that he is a true believer, that he has true piety. The first person that the hypocrite has deceived then is often the hypocrite himself. But we see in this passage that what makes a hypocrite is they love the audience. They love to be seen by others. And so it seems the solution in this passage is, is very straightforward. Remove the audience. Get rid of the audience, and the hypocrite disappears. That sounds pretty good. Go into your room and shut the door. Hypocrite loses his audience. He loses his hypocrisy. Right? Not exactly. Not exactly. If that is what we mean by solving the problem of the hypocrite, then we've just added one more rule. And who are the very best people at following the rules? The hypocrite. The Pharisee. All right, one more rule to look righteous. I go in the secret place and I pray. The problem is that the hypocrite is not solved by getting rid of the audience. Because Jesus is pointing to something quite a bit deeper. He is pointing to the heart of the hypocrite. Look closely. They love to be seen. They love to be seen. The going out and being seen is driven 
by a disposition in the heart, a heart that likes flattery, a heart that likes to be seen. And so Jesus is saying that the issue of the hypocrite is not the audience. It's an issue of the heart. I think we can all be, if we're all honest with ourselves, we can recognize that we don't need an audience to feel pretty good about ourselves. I leave the shower, and I'm alone, every morning feeling like a rock star. Nobody praises me, congratulates me, validates me, tells me I am just what I need to be more than my own heart. I don't need somebody to tell me how good I am. My heart does that fine all by itself. Jesus is warning not against the hypocrite per se that you see. He is warning about the heart condition of the hypocrite, which is he is warning against a self-centered heart. This, I think, causes reflection. How often does our prayer turn away from God and then into ourselves to reflect on its own virtue? How often, perhaps, do we find ourselves in prayer and something like this happens? God, do you mind if I pity myself a little? Or God, pardon me while I tisk-tisk at those who don't agree with me or aren't as in line with you as I am. Or, God, do you mind if I go off just a little bit on what an inferior spouse or ungrateful boss I have? Or perhaps, God, I thank you that I am not like these other men who are extortioners and unjust, adulterers, or even tax collectors. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. You see, the heart in prayer often turns to itself and says, attaboy, or you're better than that. Or if everything were just, you'd have your way. The heart desires to fixate on itself. The perversity of this is that between fixating on God in prayer, the heart would rather fixate on itself. Now think about that. The God of the Psalms, the one whom the cherubim sing to, the one whose glory fills the temple and shakes it in Isaiah's day, is in the room or in the presence of the person praying, and the heart says, aren't I fascinating? Aren't I interesting? Aren't I good and special? Look at me, I'm praying. How can the heart be in the presence of the majesty of God and still be looking at itself with wonder and amazement? The self-centeredness of our heart is beyond searching out. It is desperately bent upon itself. How much sin is even in our piety, even in our prayers, we bring pride and selfishness and heave that in front of God's face. What despair we should have as we look at the heart of the hypocrite. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones 
says this. He says in, in looking at this passage, we see the essence of sin. He writes, the whole point of the teaching here is our Lord's devastating exposure of the terrible effects of sin upon the human soul, and especially sin in the form of the self and of pride. We tend to think of sin as we see it in rags and in the gutters of life. We look at the drunkard, the poor fellow, and we say, there is sin. That is sin. But that is not the essence of sin. To have a real picture and a true understanding of it, you must look at some great saint, some unusually devout and devoted man. Look at him there upon his knees in the very presence of God. Even there, self is intruding itself. And the temptation is for him to think about himself, to think pleasantly and pleasurably about himself, and really to be worshiping himself rather than God. That, not the other, is the true picture of sin. The other is sin, of course, but where you do not see, but there you do not see it at its acme. You do not see it in its essence. Sin is something that follows us even into the very presence of God. That is the sinfulness of sin. That even in prayer, we like to focus on ourselves. Even when Isaiah is being shaken by the glory of the temple, if you were to put us there in our prayer life, we'd be saying, hmm, I feel pretty good about myself. How could we do that except that Our heart is self-centered. What this means to me is that if all I had in my life to present to God at judgment were my prayers, I would be justly condemned as an idolater. Can anyone here say otherwise? What is the remedy The remedy is this secret place that we are supposed to go into. But if our heart is still the same heart in the secret place as it is in public, then it must not be a location. The secret place is referring to something quite different. It's referring to the idea of self-forgetfulness, where I come into prayer and the last thing on my mind is myself. And the thing that consumes me is the communion I have with God. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, says this, Genuine love is always self-forgetful in the true sense of the word. But if we are to have it, our old man must die and all his virtues and qualities. And this can only be done where the disciple forgets self and clings solely to Christ. Do you know where we experience self-forgetfulness? When we're in love. Have you seen those two lovers on a date, first, second, third date, sitting next to you? They are consumed with each other's conversation. They are hanging on every word. The world is completely away from them. It is because they are in love with the person that they are conversing with that they have self-forgetfulness. But when love fades, the romantic date always has a TV in the corner. So you can keep your eye on the game and pick up the main things from the wife, right? But for some reason, your wife just never feels quite as uh, 
uh, loved in those nights as the nights when you went out, just she and you. Hmm. So when love fades, self-centeredness seems to come back. But here is the bottom line. The self-centered heart will be condemned. What does Jesus say of the self-centered heart? They have received their reward. What he is saying there is that this person who has prayed has received a receipt, payment in full, for all that you have done. And what is his reward? It is the praise of man, or it is the praise of his own heart. It is his own self-satisfaction, his own self-congratulation. That is the entire reward for the entire act and life of his piety. You got your reward in your self-satisfaction. In getting that reward, what has he forfeited? He has forfeited the reward of the Father. What's the reward of the Father? It is communion. It is his presence. It is being in the room that Isaiah was in with the God who is holy, holy, holy. We cannot look at this lightly. The hypocrite receives an actor's reward, which is earthly praise. The one who prays in the secret place receives the heavenly reward, which is communion with God. And there is no mixture. You get one or the other. And so when this life ends, if your heart was self-centered and all of your prayers go up in the flames of idolatry, you will have no communion with God. There is a serious warning here. How much reward have you lost by self-praise? Is your faith real or an act? Paul says in Galatians, Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. There are two choices. And if you look at the heart that I fight with, I've reaped a lot of corruption. The self-centered heart beats loudly. The second prayer that Paul, that, that Jesus wants us to see, the second prayer that is revealed, or the second heart that is revealed, I should say, is this. Prayer reveals the insecure heart. Prayer reveals the insecure heart. Jesus says, in verse 7, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Who are these Gentiles? These Gentiles were the people from the nations. They were Romans and Greeks and all these people that lived out of the Holy Land. They were not Jews. Their worldview was completely different. They didn't have a God that they were in covenant with. They had a pantheon of gods that they didn't know well, that they didn't have a relationship with, and so their religion was pagan, and their, their views of prayer were ritualistic and formalistic. What would happen is somebody would pray, and something good would happen to that person, and they would write down that prayer, and they would, they would make that the prayer that they prayed every time for hundreds of years. They would pray to every possible God, trying to get somebody to listen to them. They would repeat words. They would heap up vows. They would do all sorts of things to try and get the ear of God. 
a God, any God. They prayed with trial and error. Maybe somebody's listening. Maybe somebody will respond. Maybe the example of, of the prayer life of the pagan was this. The, the, the modern uh, search for extraterrestrial life is uh, called SETI, search for extraterrestrial life. And the idea is that we just send a signal out in every possible direction, and we try and listen for a signal in every possible direction. And maybe, just maybe, an infinitesimal likelihood will come where we'll get a signal. And then we have a connection. That's very much how the pagan prays. Maybe I'll have a connection. Maybe a God will hear my prayer. And so the heart of the pagan is found in these words. They think they will be heard. Do you hear the insecurity? They think they will be heard. The pagan approaches prayer unsure and insecure. The pagan is insecure that God is listening or cares. He is aware desperately aware of his separation. He is on earth and God is up high and there is nothing he can do to get his attention. The, the, The pagan, the Gentile, prays like an orphan. Nobody up there knows me. Nobody up there is watching me. Nobody up there really cares. But I need to pray. And so what do they do? What does the insecure heart do when it prays? It trusts not in God but in techniques. They heap up empty phrases, and they trust in effort, many words. The power of prayer to a pagan, to a Gentile, lies in the praying itself. The power of prayer comes by repetition, rhetoric, leveraging. Don't you know I've done good things for you, God? Now hear my prayer. Begging. Please, God, if you'll answer this prayer, I'll do this. Making vows. If you give me what I ask, I will do this for you. Etc. Do you see what's happening in the insecure heart? The insecure heart has no trust in God, and so they put all their trust in their techniques and their efforts. Pagan prayer destroys real prayer and true faith. Do you see what it does? It exchanges a God of grace who is happy to give to his children the things that they need and instead treats it as a God of law. If I march to the right beat, you must answer me. It trusts, it it moves its trust from God to the method, to the technique, to the vow. Will this prayer be answered? It depends on how I perform on the vow. Answered prayer becomes earned by effort rather than received as a gift. Why is God favorable to you? Because you're righteous. As opposed to God is favorable to you because he loves you and has made you righteous in his son Jesus. Do you see what happens? The insecure heart again takes the true God and prays to an idol, and the idol is again ourself. Now we need to examine something here. Why is Jesus warning disciples about praying like pagans? There are two possible reasons. First, because many of his disciples pray like pagans. Now think about that. How grievous must it be to our Heavenly Father when a child of His comes to Him like He doesn't know Him? 
comes to him like an orphan, comes to him doubtful of his love. How grievous that must be to the heart of God the Father. But second, and perhaps more ominous, I think Jesus is revealing that it is possible to have a Christian veneer covering a pagan heart. How we pray reveals our true theology. If we come to God vowing and begging and doubting his love for us, then we are saying the God I believe in is not a heavenly father. And you reveal a pagan heart. Do you know the God of the gospel in your heart? That is the question that the insecure heart must search and answer. Now third, we see that prayer reveals a self-centered heart. We see that prayer reveals the insecure heart. Those are both disguises. Those are both disguises. But third, prayer also reveals the son's heart. Prayer reveals the son's heart. Jesus came to earth and was unique among all men in that he prayed to God as father in all his prayers. So shocking was the fact that he prayed to God as father that we are told in the gospel of John they tried to arrest him and kill him because it was blasphemy to act like God in heaven could be one person's father. It was scandalous. People noticed Jesus prayed differently because he prayed to the Father. In Luke 11, the disciples, after Jesus prayed, asked him to teach him how to pray. The reason they wanted him to teach him how to pray is because they didn't want his performance or his mechanics in prayer. They wanted the connection that he had when he said the words, Father. In contrast to the self-centered heart, the Jesus prayed to the Father in the secret place. He conversed intimately and intimately, intently with the Father. Jesus' heart when he prayed was fixated on the Father. We have these passages in the Gospels where he prayed all night. The desire for sleep was never greater than his fixation with the communion of Jesus, or of the Father. Contrast that with how many times I've fallen asleep just just trying to pray. In contrast to the insecure heart, Jesus rested in the Father's love and care. He knew that the Father knows what he needs before he asks. Go to the scene in Gethsemane where Jesus knows exactly what is about to happen. He knows what is ahead with the arrests and the, the attacks and the, uh, the, 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 the scourgings and the cross. He knows all of that is in front of him. He knows that is coming. And yet he prays in the garden, my father, not my will, but yours be done. He knew that the father's will was that he had to go through all of that. What is amazing is that Jesus was so secure in the goodness and the love of his father, that he knew that when the father did not say there would be another way, that he was able to get up and face what was in front of him. 
Only a son's heart can be so secure that it can lay its life on the line and say, not my will, but yours be done. Only a heart that is so secure in the goodness and the power of God in heaven to take care of everything that we need and to do what is absolutely best in all circumstances can pray, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus prays the heart that is secure in the Father. He prays a son's heart. Basically, Jesus is saying that the heart of prayer, the spectacles that we have to have to see rightly when we pray, is knowing God as your Father. Real prayer requires the Son's heart. Our heart is revealed in our prayers. Jesus' teaching on prayer points to our desperate need. We cannot pray to God truly and rightly from the heart because our heart is woefully self-centered and insecure. If the heart that is required to pray is the heart of a son, then we know we don't have a heart like that. We need a heart transplant. Or as Bonhoeffer says, our old man must die. These are extreme measures. But if you see this, if you recognize that your heart must have a transplant because it beats death, if you recognize that you need to have your old man die to have the life that Jesus demonstrates, then there is good news for you. Jesus, the true and perfect Son of God, the one who rightfully calls God his Father, and the only one who has ever heard the Father speak to him from heaven, calling him, my beloved Son, was sent by the Father to save us from our self-centered hearts and our insecure hearts by removing from us the punishment of sin. Jesus went to the cross, the righteous and beloved Son of God, to pay for our sins. And it is here that we see what Jesus did to give us the privilege of calling God Father. On the cross, he cried, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Only prayer where he did not say, Father. He did not pray, Father, because in that moment, he was bearing the wrath of our sins. On the cross, Jesus found himself in the secret place, alone. His Father was not with him as he always had been. Instead, he experienced the darkness and silence of judgment. When he cried, my God, my God, he found himself secured not in the Father, but upon the cross. In order to share with us the gift of knowing God as Father, he experienced the separation of the Gentile. He bore the death deserved of all self-centered hearts. And because of this, we are given this good news God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then a rightful heir. Because Jesus, the Son of God, endured our forsakenness, he has made us able to share with him in his sonship. 
In Jesus, we call out to God, Abba, Father. And he hears us with the same love and affection that he hears the prayers of his own beloved son. Have you put your faith in Jesus? Have you recognized your hopeless need of a heart transplant? Are you ready to call upon Jesus to be your Lord and Savior? Call upon him. Save me, Jesus. He is faithful. He will make you a beloved child of his heavenly Father. River, the Lord's Prayer is a beautiful gift from Jesus that teaches us that we can pray to God as sons and daughters because of Jesus. In this prayer, we reform our hearts from self-centered to centered on God. Our first three petitions is, Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. As those petitions grow in our heart, in our worldview, the self-centeredness of our heart will wither. And to answer the insecurity of of our heart, the Lord's Prayer gives us that too. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. What insecurity, what doubt, what question could still live in our heart when we know our Heavenly Father will take care of all we need? The Lord's Prayer is given to us because we are beloved sons and daughters of God in heaven. Therefore, let us pray now the prayer that Jesus has taught us to pray. Bow with me. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive those, our debtors against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.